The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Advancing Personalized Care in RCC, Navigating Rapid Therapeutic Expansion and Sequencing Strategies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XZU860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to our program tonight, Advancing Personalized Care in Real Cell Carcinoma. We really do have a terrific panel tonight. We're going to have a lot of exciting discussions. I'm going to introduce everybody one by one in just a moment here. Uh, and we have a number of different goals for today. We want to augment your knowledge of the latest efficacy and safety data for approved therapies for RTC. We're going to talk about personalizing care. And I usually like to do this in the form of zingers, which are really tough clinical scenarios that I don't have answers to, but I expect answers from, from the panel. Um, and then we'll provide you with approaches that we're using in the clinic to manage our patients with kidney cancer from day to day. Uh, I want to extend a heartfelt thanks to the battle of KC Cure. KC Cure's research mission is exactly in line with what all the investigators here tonight are really trying to do. We want to provide answers to questions that patient caregivers are asking. Um, KC Cure does these tremendous polls, and I've had the pleasure of working with them on several which really address key pertinent questions around evolving therapies for renal cell. And we'll actually highlight some of the data that Dina and her colleagues have assembled tonight. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Tian Zhang, who's an associate professor at UT Southwestern, a dear friend and colleague who's done a lot in the field of renal cell, and she'll be discussing the latest evidence for perioperative strategies for local regional or resectable renal cell. Tian? Thanks so much, Monty. Um, great to see everyone out tonight. Um, thanks for coming. Um, so we'll talk about perioperative strategies um, for resectable renal cell carcinoma. So um, we know that in patients who uh, have their kidney cancers resected, um, there are some limited options. And um, as uh, even um, two years ago, we had very uh, limited options and, and um, different uh, benefit from, from Sunindib. But um, it, about two years ago, we've um, really opened up our, our uh, options with um, immunotherapy. So we'll talk about um, the perioperative um, systemic treatment options um, in the adjuvant setting. Um, we'll talk through the data there. And um, we, I do think we do need to reduce recurrence. If that's a surrogate, if disease-free survival is a surrogate for overall survival, um, then reducing recurrence is a really important factor in patients who are post-surgery. Um, and there's a need for effective um, therapies and moving our, what we knew in advanced disease and metastatic disease um, earlier in the disease course, it's really important to think about effective strategies in your earlier disease states. So um, there's a variety of uh, approaches for calculating um, recurrence risk in my clinic. If you're a fellow rotating with me, we always sit down and think about patients when they're making this adjuvant decision. Uh, we think about their baseline recurrence risk. So there's a couple of calculators that are online. The QR codes will lead you right there. Um, the Ashura nomogram is on the left side and the UCLA nomogram is on the right side. Um, but these are um, features of uh, the patient at clinical and pathologic features of their tumor at the time of their resection. And when you put in all of their characteristics, you, um, the pop-up is a disease-free survival curve. And um, what we usually read out is a two-year disease-free survival rate. And then we have that as sort of, if you did not go on um, treatment, um, this would be your two-year disease-free survival rate and the risk of recurrence. Um, and then, you know, if we did your um, adjuvant treatment, this is um, what your potential benefit might be. So we have this conversation a lot at my clinic. <clears throat> 
What do patients uh, perceive when they, they're thinking about um, the benefits and risks of adjuvant um, as their post-surgery? Uh, uh, so this is d uh, data actually from Dina Battle and uh, the Casey Cure surveys that Monty talked about earlier. Um, but this is um, more than 1,000 participants um, and talk about numbers in, in surveys. Um, but these were patients um, with a median of 57 years old who um, self-identified with localized renal cell carcinoma. Um, and um, and uh, a good 20% of them had um, stage 3 disease at the initial diagnosis. And so if you, you're looking across those um, bar uh, graphs uh, below, you're seeing uh, both the physician assessment of their risk as well as the patient assessment of their risk. And so if you look, the, the blue bars are always a little bit more than the purple bars. And so um, this tells us that the patient's anxiety and thoughts about um, and what they perceive as a risk of recurrence is always a little bit higher than what the physician thinks and, um, and from uh, potentially the re recurrence risk calculators and what we know in clinical practice, the patients often will perceive their risk of recurrence higher than their physicians. All right, so when we talk about adjuvant treatment decision-making, I'm always talking about balancing that um, benefit versus risk. So um, we have the potential benefit of uh, preventing disease recurrence and hopefully getting patients to live longer. But ultimately, anybody receiving adjuvant treatment is receiving treatment in a disease-free state um, when they're not having symptoms necessarily of any kidney cancer, but if they're having side effects from their treatment, then potential toxicity um, and uh, their side effects and symptoms from the, uh, the, the treatment toxicity. And so then and, and potentially their inconvenience and cost of treatment um, are all factors that we take into effect um, when we're thinking about the adjuvant decision-making process. So these are multiple um, uh, small molecule inhibitors um, that have been tested in the adjuvant space. Um, the only trial that was positive was S-TRAC um, with sunitinib, um, which we won't uh, talk too much about, but the um, disease-free survival endpoint was met, uh, but overall survival was not. And this sunitinib was FDA approved not too long ago, 2017, um, within our careers. Um, and, um, and the uptake of the use of sunitinib in the adjuvant setting really wasn't um, quite as high as um, what we'll see uh, with immunotherapy. So there have been four um, adjuvant trials um, reported so far. I'll t um, walk you through um, some of these in each of these slides. Um, Prosper RCC was um, a cooperative group trial run in the ECOG and across the NTC NCTN cooperative groups. Um, this is uh, a trial of perioperative nivolumab, a dose before surgery followed by nivolumab uh, for nine doses um, versus surgery alone. And you'll see the um, uh, uh, data uh, safety monitoring committees actually stopped the trial at the interim analysis um, where the median follow-on was about 16 months and there was no difference in their um, recurrence-free survival between the cohorts. And I am told that um, this uh, data is coming to a manuscript um, sometime very soon. All right. So Emotion 010 um, was a second trial that um, uh, had a negative result. Um, this was a trial of atezolizumab versus placebo in the adjuvant setting for high-risk um, uh, localized renal cell carcinoma. Median follow-up here was almost four years, and the median disease-free survival uh, was about 57 months versus 49 months in the, um, in the patients um, who were treated with placebo. And so no difference in disease-free survival, and the median overall survival was not reached. Um, and you see these curves lie, lie right on top of each other, showing no benefit of atezolizumab. 
And then finally, the, tr um, uh, the final not negative study we'll talk about is uh, Checkmate 914, um, which was six months of nivolumab and ipilimumab in this particular cohort compared against placebo. Um, and you see these curves of the combination um, also uh, lie right on top of the patients treated with placebo at the median follow-up just over three years, um, the disease-free survival um, was not reached versus 50.7 months, um, and again, not statistically significant. Um, we're about to see the third cohort of Checkmate 914 report out on Saturday, um, so the nivolumab versus placebo cohort. Um, this will, is a late-breaking abstract, and so we'll see that um, the abstract in the morning and then the oral um, presentation shortly thereafter, so stay tuned on Saturday. All right. And then finally, we'll talk about adjuvant um, uh, pembrolizumab. So Keno 564 was a, uh, uh, a positive trial in the adjuvant setting of um, clear cell kidney cancer, um, stratified based on um, uh, the presence of metastatic disease that's been surgically resected, um, and also on um, performance status and within um, the U.S. versus outside the U.S. But patients were randomized to pembrolizumab versus placebo, and uh, disease-free survival um, was the primary endpoint um, and they uh, were able to also save some power to then um, uh, look at overall survival as a key secondary endpoint. Um, so the primary endpoint um, of disease-free survival was met at the first analysis at two years, and then we subsequently had a 30-month follow-up, um, and you see the two um, disease-free survival curves. Um, we've seen this multiple times now um, with an improvement in disease-free survival for patients, um, particularly at that um, two-year landmark uh, rate 78% of patients um, treated with pembrolizumab were free of disease. <clears throat> All right. And then disease-free survival by recurrence risk groups are intermediate risk and high risk versus high risk in M1 NED populations. You do see the um, absolute benefit of patients treated with pembrolizumab increasing as we go into the high risk and M1 NED patient populations. And so we do think there's some difference in patients who are intermediate high versus high and also M1 NED. All right, key secondary endpoint of overall survival. These data were um, presented with the primary and the updated analyses at 24 and 30 months, respectively. Um, you see the hazard ratios are right around 0 0.5, 0 0.52 at the most recent update. Um, there was a press release earlier this year that um, uh, the overall survival had met all the events needed and, um, and was a positive study. All right. Um, Treatment-related adverse events. We talk about this a lot in my clinic as we make this um, patient-driven uh, treatment decision, but thinking about the side effects that occur with uh, a year of pembrolizumab, um, so we talk a lot about fatigue and pruritus, um, the endocrinopathies. Um, if you look, there's um, a little bit of grade 3 um, diarrhea and rashes, um, but ultimately um, single-agent pembrolizumab, um, we can get most people through the side effects and toxicities. And the spectrum of immune-mediated adverse events are, are quite significant. They can affect most um, organ systems. And I won't belabor this point, but um, we do have to think about um, the potential for um, adverse events, um, immune-mediated, and also for severe immune-mediated adverse events as they occur um, any, at any point um, through the course of uh, immunotherapy treatments. And uh, Dr. McDermott will be talking more about um, all of our immune-mediated toxicities and the timing of those um, when we get into the, the immunotherapy combinations. 
Um, there is a um, adjuvant trial that's actively enrolling. Um, this is LightSpark 022, which is based on um, the positive results from uh, Keno 564. Um, this is uh, all patients with high-risk clear cell kidney cancer uh, randomized to either the combination of belzutifen, a HIF2-alpha inhibitor with uh, pembrolizumab, versus placebo with pembrolizumab. And again, the primary endpoint around disease-free survival. Um, I want to uh, take us back to the patient perspectives because this is a very much patient-driven decision whether they um, go through a year of treatment. And this fear of cancer recurrence um, is a data point also from Dina Battle and Casey Cure, where the, the rates of distress really um, decrease uh, over the course of time. But it's a, a, a point, point about um, the, the, the mental burden of potential for recurrence. Um, and so as they're um, many years um, uh, and uh, months out um, from, uh, their, um, as, uh, from their surgeries and as they be become longer uh, away from the time of surgery, their distress decreases, um, what you see on the left. Um, but um, uh, they still have some mental burden as they come for scans um, over the course of, uh, of time. And that fear of cancer recurrence um, continues uh, to linger over the um, 40 months that the, uh, these patients were surveyed. All right, so at the end of the day, when we're talking about um, in our clinic visits and balancing that benefit versus risk um, disease um, in, of uh, adjuvant uh, pembrolizumab, um, uh, and, and treatments in this adjuvant setting, we're, we're really thinking about um, the potential benefit um, of a treatment that potentially grade three toxicity is low. Um, there's now improved overall survival and to try to prevent disease-free um, disease recurrence, um, but also thinking about the toxicities and um, the potential severe toxicities that can be life-threatening, the potential cost to patient and payers, and also the inconvenience of coming back and forth for IV treatments every three or every six weeks. Um, so currently, we do have both pembrolizumab and sunitinib um, approved in the setting. Um, I would probably warrant a guess that pembrolizumab is the preferred option over sunitinib for many of us on this, uh, on this stage and also in practice. Um, but this was, uh, Keno 564 was the first one um, of all the adjuvant trials to show an overall survival improvement. And we'll look forward to seeing that data on Saturday. Um, so multi um, additional data and outcomes from these ongoing trials will be important, and I do think that we need to think about the patients who are at the highest risk when we're having these conversations of the patients who might benefit the most. Um, and with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Monty. Tian, that was just terrific. Great overview of the adjuvant landscape. Um, so we're going to start with a softball question. But remember, the softball questions are really for the other RCC program, right? We do all the, the hardball questions here. Um, but uh, let's take the case of a 68-year-old patient who presents with gross hematuria. He has a CT scan showing a 10-centimeter left-sided renal mass. He undergoes a radical nephrectomy. Uh, the specimen shows that there's some renal vein involvement, so this is a T3 lesion. It's invading into the perinephric fat. Margins are negative. Uh, it's grade 3 with clear cell histology. I guess there is some rhabdoid and focal sarcomatoid differentiate. I think that would probably take this up to a grade 4. But the patient recovers well. Post-surgical imaging is clear. Uh, Tian, we'll start with you. Would you offer this patient adjuvant therapy? You know, he's at pretty decently high risk uh, with a, a T3 disease um, and grade 3 um, and sarcomatoid differentiation. I, I personally would offer at least and have that conversation with the patient about adjuvant pembrolizumab. And within what window would you want to start that therapy? Yeah. I usually talk to folks um, within three months of their surgery um, and um, seeing them and and having that discussion about what 
the pathology showed and um, looking at their Assure nomogram, thinking about baseline risk of recurrence, and then um, thinking about what a year of pembrolizumab might do. So Pedro, it took a little while for this patient to get to. It actually took him six months to find his way to your clinic. <laughs> In this scenario, would you still offer adjuvant pembrolizumab? Yeah, that's a great question. So of course, on study, we're not a we're not doing that, so we're kind of going there. But assuming the scans are still negative and considering all the risk factors that uh, Tian pointed out, I probably would still have the discussion, um, explaining him, you know, you know, hopefully scans are negative and explain there's still um, a good chance, especially now that we know survival advantage. I think that conversation probably would occur in my clinic in that scenario, patient coming to me four or five months you know, after nephrectomy and not within the 12 weeks that Tian mentioned. And it's six months, so the answer is I would yes. have that conversation, explain that's not really what we did on study, but nonetheless, thinking the high-risk features are comatoid differentiation addition to the T3, as you said, H3 disease there, you know, I, I think it's fair to say, it's clear cell, right? You know, I do think um, that's a conversation I would still have. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dave, the patient's trying to get into your clinic, takes a really long time. He sees you after a year, a year follow. You're super popular, we all know that. So it takes a year to get to your clinic. Would you offer adjuvant therapy at that time? Patient still hasn't recurred based on recent imaging. What do you think? Uh, just to be clear, it takes seven days to get into <laughs> They keep track of these stats in my place. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, uh, probably yes. I'm not sure we know the answer to that question, as Pedro was saying. But to me, the issue, as my colleagues had said, is more the biology than the stage, which is in Checkmate 914, which Tan discussed, which was a negative trial, Bob Mozer subsequently talked about, you know, what predicted for a better outcome and high-grade pdl one status sarcomatoid patients all did better in that negative trial than those patients um, without those features. So these, this person likely has all three of those features, I would imagine. And because of the biology, I would offer the therapy, I think. And give us a good cutoff. Let's take away the sarcomatoid component for a second. Let's say this was just a pure clear cell uh, patient. And if they came into your clinic a year out, two years out, when's that point at which you would say, eh, adjuvant therapy is probably not relevant? It, I, if I'm being arbitrary, I would say two years. That's usually the time when we scan people less, when they, if they make it to that point. Mm -hmm. By that point, you've probably excluded someone with a very aggressive recurrence. Mm -hmm. So... I'm okay in that setting, not treating, but we haven't had too many of those patients yet. I, I personally haven't had any, um, so I don't really know how I would manage the patient. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I found this really only happened right after the approval of adjuvant pembrolizumab, right. where you had those patients who you might have been following that were resected who came and said, well, what about this for me, right? So, you know, it, it, it does come up on occasion. Um, so let me ask you, Tian, you go to your pathologists, okay, you have the pathology re-reviewed at UT Southwestern, and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this initial read on pathology, all wrong, it's not clear cell with sarcomatoid features, it's actually a papillary renal cell carcinoma. Mm -hmm. Would you offer this patient adjuvant therapy with pembrolizumab for that? Well, technically, you know, we were talking about the off, um, uh, not uh, on trial approaches. And I, I you know, with papillary, um, we um, also did not enroll them uh, on these uh, clear cell trials. And so I, I would have the conversation, but I, I don't think they, they would fit and the benefit would not necessarily be there. Um, so I have not treated with uh, adjuvant pembrolizumab for papillary renal cell. I, I've kind of done the same. You know, Dave, I'm going to throw this one to you because you had some very compelling data from Keynote 427 for 
pembrolizumab's activity in papillary. I mean, is this something you would consider in a papillary patient? Um, probably not. I think we should do the trial. You know, okay. I think the Merck should do it and enroll it. There's rationale for it because the response rate to single-agent pembro in the metastatic setting for those patients was 25%. So it's worth, it's worth doing. And you guys have proven that you can accrue trials for non-clear cell patients over the last several years. Whether we can do that in the adjuvant setting remains to be seen, but I think we should give it a shot. Very good. No, I, I completely agree with you there. And Pedro, I'm going to turn this question over to you. Sure. You take it to your pathologist at Case, and they say, wait a minute, UT Southwestern was way off. This isn't papillary. <laughs> this, is, this is, in fact, a patient with chromophobe histology, yeah. pure chromophobe. Would you offer adjuvant right. therapy no. in that setting? I, I would not. I would follow observation. And I, th I do think, to your point, uh, David, that I, I do believe that trial is ongoing. I found out in my search for, to put it together for that Pembro versus Placebo for patients specifically with popular RCC. It's like three or 400 patients. I get the NC, at least on clinicaltrial.gov. I don't know who's the sponsor um, for specific for papillary, not chromophobe. But do you, you think know. that trial is big enough to answer the question? That's a great, fantastic question, right? Because they also take disease-free survival as a primary endpoint. I believe it's around 400 or so patients. Um, you know, so it's a fantastic question. And I mean, to your point, we have to do it. We have to prove it. Um, you know, but thus far, I don't think we have data to support that b beyond clear cell, especially chromophobe, for example, to your point, Monty. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I've got to agree with you there. So, Tian, you know, you're doing your physical exam on this patient. Let's, let's pretend this patient just has okay, pure clear cell histology, okay? Uh, actually, let's leave it in those sarcomatoid features, okay? You patient presents to your clinic within that three-month window. So this is more of a standard adjuvant scenario. But you notice on physical exam, they're itching a lot. You see some skin plaques, and they say, oh, yeah, doc, I've got some psoriasis. Mm -hmm. They've never been on biologics for it. Would you offer adjuvant therapy in that setting? Oh, it's a really interesting question, actually. With um, you know, I would uh, have a conversation about you know how well controlled their um, baseline autoimmune disease is. Um, if it, they're on any systemic steroids, Oh, I think my um, threshold for potentially challenging with checkpoint inhibitors is if they're not on um, uh, systemic steroids and not on disease-modifying agents, um, we have a conversation and this is an approved um, treatment. Um, it may flare up their underlying autoimmune disease, um, but there are people who want to take that risk. And I would put in a plug, um, there is an ongoing trial that the NCI is um, uh, actively enrolling to where uh, um, patients with underlying autoimmune disease are being um, uh, enrolled and treating, treated with nivolumab, not pembrolizumab, but, um, and, and hopefully we'll have that conversation and, and data to show that people who have um, underlying autoimmune diseases um, can, um, in certain circumstances, um, still be presented with immune checkpoint inhibitors. I, I gotta admit, I didn't actually know about that study. Is that sort of across indications with? It's across indications where nivolumab is a, a standard treatment. Oh, very good. Okay, I think that's gonna be really interesting. So, you know, one scenario that we don't address later, so I'm just gonna go ahead and bring it up now, is the scenario, and let's take a patient like this. Let's say they go through their nephrectomy, and about 10 months later, they actually present with an isolated lung metastasis, and you say, gosh, this is a perfect opportunity for metastasectomy. So 10 months out, you remove a lung tumor, and that particular patient, if the pathology, again, shows clear cell RCC, would you offer adjuvant therapy? Sure. I think, you know, that patient would fit under the M1-NED uh, patient population, right, a metastasectomy within a year of their initial nephrectomy. Um, and that's the, the population where we see the disease-free uh, survival benefit to be the highest. Now, um, I have colleagues who will say, well, are we treating early versus late? You know, should we be waiting until 
more disease? Um, is there micrometastatic disease? Should we be waiting? Um, but I would at least have that conversation of adjuvant treatment and this patient population would have benefit. Same scenario to you, Pedro, but let's flip things just a little bit here. Let's imagine this particular patient presents to your clinic two years after having their uh, initial kidney surgery, right. has a metastasectomy. At that time point, would you potentially recommend using adjuvant therapy? Yeah, that's a great question because obviously the longer it, it takes between the completion of, or the nephrectomy in this case, you know, and, and then the recurrence, the more you think, you know, might you might, you might have better outcomes, right? And the tumor might be more angiogenic in nature and you are actually off what has been explored in the adjuvant trials. So I have to say that probably would address definitely local therapy. And then I would feel, you know, I would feel okay watching that patient. You know, also depends on the location of the mat, for example. But, you know, if, I think it's different if you see a, a, a solitary pancreatic spot versus a lung spot versus a lymph node versus a, a, a liver thing, because that, you know, we know that's a, the location of METs also predicts biology and helps us understand a little bit more what might happen in the future. So taking that into consideration, I would say that probably two years later, one spot, let's say in the lung, I would probably think either resection or, or SBRT, and I might uh, uh, watch that patient. Now, if the patient's sarcomatoid, et cetera, you know, we will still have the conversation, even though, you know, probably we tend to watch that patient. But I would take anyone offering an ear of member. I don't think it's unreasonable, but I probably would still um, do an extra surveillance on that case. I'm kind of with you on that one. I'd probably lean towards observation in that scenario. And now I'm going to actually turn it over to my dear friend, Dr. McDermott who's a professor at Beth Israel uh, Deaconess Medical Center and, of course, uh, World's Authority in Kidney Cancer. Okay. okay, thank you, Monty. Glad to be here. Thank you all for coming. Um, so I'm here to talk about how we choose from the bounty of first-line options that we have. Um, lots of exciting data with updates here at this meeting. Um, I'm a little bit older than my colleagues here. On, you know, on the stage. And I remember when things were not so good for our patients. So before 2005, before we had targeted therapy, before we had um, PD-1 therapy, outcomes for our patients were exceedingly poor, as you can see here. Um, combination of investigators, patients, patient advocates, industry have really led to a significant improvement in outcomes for patients, as you can see, both with the introduction of VEGF about 15 years ago, and now PD-1 blockade and those combinations, essentially by me bringing PD-1 from the second line to the first line, we've seen major improvements in long-term outcome, which I'll talk about today. So here are the data from four of the trials that have shown a survival advantage in the front line for our patients. They sort of fall into two flavors, the sort of dual IO therapy where we're blocking both PD-1 and CTLA-4, and the IO-TKI variety where we're blocking PD-1 and VEGF. Most of them are in that second category. And they've all shown significant improvements in overall survival. Different outcomes, though, depending on which endpoints you're focusing on with the VEGF-TKI um, combi combinations, generally improving those early outcomes like response rate and PFS, um, and the IO therapy having more impact later on the tail of the curve. So we're going to talk a lot tonight about the sort of the shapes of these curves. This is the uh, Keynote 426 trial, which is pembrolizumab and exitinib. All of these trials had sunitinib as the control arm. And while we shouldn't really compare them to one another, um, we can compare them, I think, to how they did against that control arm. Um, and what you can see here, um, and this was very impressive data when it was first presented about five years ago, maybe six years ago now at this meeting, 
Um, Pembroaxi clearly beating sunitinib uh, as it relates to progression-free survival. That benefit, now that we have five-year data, is still with us. Um, overall survival, similar story, and improvement in overall survival, those curves starting to come together as we get closer to five years, um, five years out. Uh, Checkmate 9ER, which is um, nivolumab and cabozantinib, a very similar story as well. You see clear early benefit with response rate and progression-free survival, favoring uh, nevo and cabozantinib. That benefit also translates into an overall survival benefit. The last time this data was presented, we saw almost a 12-month improvement in median overall survival with the combination compared to the last time we saw this data with Nevo and Cabo. And later this weekend, we're going to, Dr. Borland is going to give an update of essentially the five-year data from this trial, looking at the combination. And many of those same themes are going to be in this presentation with clear improvements in median progression-free survival and overall survival continuing as is response and complete, uh, complete response as well. No new safety issues. In, in general, most of the safety concerns with these combinations have been pretty well established, and we'll talk about that in a few slides. Um, the CLEAR trial was sort of the third in line of these VEGF-PD-1 combinations. In general, very similar themes looking at um, clear improvement in progression-free survival, um, also improvements in overall survival, as once again, as you get longer out with overall survival, those curves are coming together somewhat, which we can talk about if you want. Um, but in general, this trial probably has the best early endpoint results um, as it relates to response rate and progression-free survival um, of all three of these uh, three of these trials. The subgroup analysis for this trial, essentially, what they looked at was how how bulk disease translated into outcome. Um, and not surprisingly, if just looking at tumor measurements, if you had relatively less bulky tumor, you had a greater chance of response and longer progression-free survival compared to patients with higher burden of disease. Also, not surprisingly, the patients with relatively low burden disease were more likely to be in that favorable risk category by IMDC, where we know that VEGF is probably the most active. Um, so essentially, when you look at these trials, like I said, we shouldn't compare them, but we often put them all together, um, you know, on a slide. Um, but you essentially, the message for most patients is they're going to be living longer if PD-1 therapy is part of their initial uh, approach. Um, and there, there are different trade-offs with these approaches. <clears throat> As I've suggested, most of the general results with VEGF and PD-1 are pretty similar. Um, but the IO-IO combinations have some differences, both good and bad, when you compare them to VEGF-PD-1. So here's the data for Checkmate 214. This was actually the first trial to read out. So we have the longest uh, follow-up here. We're looking now not just at the intent-to-treat group, which is what we looked at in the previous slides, but also by IMDC risk category. Um, and what you essentially you see for the Checkmate 214 is with Ipinevo, there was a survival uh, benefit for the entire population that was greater in intermediate and poor risk. Um, it was not seen in the favorable risk, and that is, you know, one of the reasons why Ipinevo is not approved in that um, subset of patients, which is a pretty large group of patients. Ipinevo is only approved for intermediate and poor risk. But the interesting thing is that over time, those curves have come together and are now somewhat crossing. 
um, suggesting that there are some patients in the favorable risk group who do get a long-term benefit, both as it relates to progression-free survival um, and overall survival. Um, here's that progression-free survival that I alluded to before. Once again, you see a benefit in progression-free survival um, in the intermediate and poor risk group that doesn't meet statistical significance. In the favorable risk group, you see that crossing of the curve. So clearly, uh, sunitinib was benefiting early for those intermediate, for those favorable risk patients, but over time, there are patients who get nevo-ipi that catch up, that are essentially out there on that tail of the curve, which seems a little bit more flat than others, um, the, the VEGF-PD-1 combination, suggesting that there are patients who are benefiting and that benefiting is lasting multiple years. This data is close to five years. The data we'll see on Saturday is now out um, to eight years. Um, so while responses are less with um, IOIO and um, PFS is shorter with this approach, probably the clear, most clear distinguishing benefit is that if you have a response to this approach, it's more likely to be durable. And here you're looking at the confirmed response rates and the duration of those response rates. Those, that durability can last over five years. Um, and particularly the deeper the response, the more likely it is um, to be durable. So, and in that translates often to improvements in quality of life because many of those patients are not just alive in response, but they're often off therapy. So the trade-offs are more early responses, more responses with VEGF-PD-1, but if you're fortunate enough to have a response with a PD-1 CTLA-4, sometimes it can be durable, and sometimes you can see remissions with that um, therapeutic approach. So Dr. Tanier, as I sort of alluded to, is gonna update this data um, with now eight years of follow-up, um, and similar things will be seen. You don't see clear improvements in progression-free survival, but now the overall survival for the intent-to-treat population is, oh, is over 52 months, which is pretty cool for our patients. Um, the response rates have been maintained, and you can see the median duration of response for the intent-to-treat group is 76 months. So that's pretty good for those patients fortunate enough to get that response. Unfortunately, we're not really great at predicting before treatment who's going to be in that um, subgroup of patients, because and there's certainly not enough of them in that group. Um, so just these are generally my thoughts about, you know, how to look at this long-term data. I'm glad to hear the thoughts of my colleagues, obviously, because they probably have differing opinions. But as I've sort of alluded to, for the PD-1 CTLA-4, we, we see improved overall survival. We see the longest follow-up, those durable responses drive a lot of that durable benefit. Um, and there is the potential to stop therapy in some patients, which can lead to improvements in quality of life. But there's no question that for that benefit, there is significant risk. There is certainly more higher incidence of IRAEs, which we'll talk about in a second, which can be uh, life-threatening um, and life-shortening. Um, there also are lower progression-free survival uh, rates, lower response rates, a higher rate of progression of disease is your best response. So for patients with active symptomatic disease, it's often not the best approach to get control over the disease. And the opposite is true for PD-1s um, and VEGF. So there, once again, you see overall survival benefits, but, but they are driven by a higher early benefit with response um, less progression of disease initially, far less, a longer progression-free survival, and a significantly lower 
adverse event rate, um, where the adverse events are easier to manage. We'll talk a little bit about some of the negatives, which are the overlapping toxicities. Sometimes you're not sure with PD-1 VEGF what is driving, for example, the diarrhea. And there's also some potential for chronic toxicity, but there's less potential for toxicity that continues after the treatment stops, which is very important for, for patients, which is, it's great that the benefit can continue, but sometimes the toxicity can continue for months and years um, afterwards. Um, and because of that downside of immune therapy in general, regardless of the approach that you take, we tried to develop this model we call treatment-free survival, which is a way of sort of partitioning patient survival over time to get a sense of how do the great news is that patients live longer, but how do they spend that time? Are they on the protocol treatment? Are they on subsequent treatment? Are they dealing with toxicity? And because iotherapy can be associated with both good and bad that lasts after you stop treatment, we thought we would develop a model that would help tell us as we add more therapies, are we adding more good or are we adding more bad or both? So this is sort of how that partition survival model looks. You can see overall survival at the top is measured as, as it would be in a standard Kaplan-Meier overall survival curve, but then the different subgroups, where in purple you're on protocol therapy, in blue you're off the initial therapy and you're living in treatment-free survival, and in gray you're surviving but on the subsequent treatment. And those sort of hash marks are the time you're spending in those categories with side effects of treatment. So when you do a treatment-free survival analysis for Checkmate 214 uh, after five years, well, you can, you can see a few things. One, as we've talked about, Nevo and Ipi produces more survival than sunitinib for the intent-to-treat group. But it, during that survival time, the patients are twice as long to be alive off treatment. But they're having more toxicity during both the time they're on drug and the time they're off therapy. So there are trade-offs for our patients. And what we think this helps us with is that initial patient discussion so that we, when you're trying to decide between Nevo-Ipi, say, and um, PEM-LEN or something like that, you can give people a sense of what they might expect, both as far as survival risk and the time that they would spend, spend alive, but also with the toxicities as well. So they can get a sense for themselves of the trade-offs of treatment. Um, Tien mentioned this before, you know, we're learning a lot about, who, you know, who gets immune-related adverse events, who's at risk, and who's not. We're also learning a lot about the timing of these adverse events. There tend to be some patterns which emerge, although not every patient follows this sort of uh, textbook. You know, we, we, we try to, based on the onset, we try to educate patients about the potential of when these side effects might emerge, what to watch for, how long these might last when to call us. Um, you know, so for example, I'm often seeing my patients more than once in, in the first month of treatment because some of my worst outcomes have happened very early on with treatment, and that educating patients can actually help improve their adherence um, to this. Um, as far as management of toxicities for IO plus TKI therapy, in general, there's less toxicity to manage, which is good, but sometimes they can be overlapping. As I mentioned, some of these drugs, both PD-1 and VEGF, can cause rash and can cause diarrhea, can cause hepatitis. So when you're seeing those, you, the question is, you know, which drug is driving it? Which drug should you stop? The advantage with some of the VEGF approaches, particularly exitinib, 
is the half-life is short. So if you're concerned someone's having diarrhea, you can stop the exitinib and within a couple of days that will get better if it's the exitinib driving the tox. Whereas if it's say the pembrolizumab, the, the um, diarrhea will persist and you need to consider steroids or other um, therapies. As far as next steps in this first line space, we, we talked about how doublets with PD-1 are now the standard of care. Uh, investigators are actively building on these doublets, looking at triplets. This is one of the first trials of a triplet to, um, to read out. This is uh, Ipinevo versus Ipinevo plus cabazantinib, the so-called COSMIC 313 trial. This is a very well-executed and important trial, which showed a clear benefit for one of the primary endpoints with cabo-nevo-ipi. You see that clear benefit in progression-free survival, but also more uh, toxicity. So the question there is, is the trade-off worth it? We've yet to see the overall survival results. If this does translate into an overall survival benefit, this will likely become an approved uh, triplet combination. If not, um, maybe not. But there are other investigators that are looking at uh, other combinations, which we also have some um, we're looking forward to. One is the LightSpark 012 trial, which is looking at Belzudafan and Lemvatinib and Pembrolizumab and Merck's version of CTLA-4. Um, Tien is leading the pedigree trial, which should help us you know, look at different combinations and whether we can adjust treatment based on treatment response, which is an exciting trial that's continuing to enroll and should finish enrollment later this year. So also, you know, obviously when we're making decisions, we need to take in the patient's uh, viewpoint. Um, and you know, the KC Cure folks are always giving us great insight into what patients like. You know, this is, you know, some recent results from patient surveys looking at how, you know, patients adjust to um, side effects and what's important and whether adjustments are being made. And when you look at some of this data, what you realize is we have more work to do with not just educating our patients, but communicating with them and ma helping manage their side effects. Because not, for example, one question here is, was the dose reduction helpful? And not every patient has finds that um, when we talk to them, uh, when we survey them. And the same thing with the, um, the, the dose reduction of treatment was, you know, when you made that dose reduction, did you feel relief? You know, were you worried about reducing side effects? It turns out that a lot of our patients reducing dose, a lot of our patients are sort of conflicted about talking to us about dose reductions and stopping. And oftentimes that drives unnecessary um, toxicity. So encouraging patients to report adverse events right away is probably better at the adverse event um, management. Um, and with that, we're on to a case, which I mean, it goes back to Dr. Paul. Yes, that's fair. That's right, excellent job. Wonderful overview, Dave. You know, I actually asked the peer review folks to give me a little bit of laxity here so I could really run with the clinical scenario which I probably would have done anyways, frankly. Um, but this is a 68-year-old gentleman once again. Um, let's say they show up to your clinic, TN, okay? And this is the week after ASCO GU. You know, you really walk them through the pros and cons of a scenario in which the patient has intermediate risk, metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Talk them through IOIO versus IOTKI. The patient, for a variety of reasons, sides with IOTKI and turns to you and says, well, doc, what's the best IOTKI regimen? Hmm. It's, uh, you put me on the spot. Uh, you know, um, there are three approved options. Actually, there are four approved options. Um, but the most common that we would use in our clinics are exitinib, pembrolizumab, lymvatinib, pembrolizumab, and cabozantinib with nivolumab. 
Um, I often, um, in terms of sequencing treatments and of the, the sort of um, massive amount of data that we have about cabozantinib in the refractory setting, I do think more axitinib pembro or lenbatinib pembro in the frontline setting if I'm using IOTKI um, to, to use cabozantinib for later. Um, but um, it's certainly also uh, worthwhile to use Cabo with Nevo. I'm really excited to see all the data um, that's coming out on Saturday. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. You know, it's, of course, we've got to wait until we see the shape and look and feel those Kaplan-Meier curves. You know, I've always been a little skeptical of the principle of waiting, you know, uh, and saving treatments for second and third lengths. We just, we never know if our patients are necessarily, unfortunately, going to make it to that setting. So I, I've really been a fan of siding with Cabo Nevo first. It seems to me, and Dave, maybe I'll ask you to comment on this, that the data seems to be kind of holding up over time, right? And why do you think that's different from what we're seeing with Axipembro or Lempebro, or will it evolve to be the same? Uh, yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I'd like to see more of the data that we've, you know, the updated curves and see what they look like. It's possibly the behavior of the combo, that would be the positive explanation that there's something about the Nevo Cabo combo that allows that benefit to last better than we see, for example, with Len Pembro. But it also could be the performance of the control arm in that study, too, possibly, with the Sunitinib folks maybe not doing as well. So, I, I, you know, to me, I, I think all three are active. People get comfortable with a certain regimen. I personally am comfortable with giving Nevo Cabo in part because we have given it so much in other scenarios. You know, I think reducing the dose helps patients tolerate it. Whereas with Lenvatinib, it's certainly a very active regimen, but I struggle to get it into patients at the dose that it's approved. So that's probably the reason we use less of it, but that's more about clinician convenience than anything else because the outcome data of the clear trial is clearly impressive too. So. Yeah. That's just my opinion. Pedro, let me ask you about that. Just building on what Dave just said, it's always been curious to me that, you know, we see this really sort of marked PFS advantage with Len Pembro in the clear trial, but then the overall survival hazard ratio seems to be pretty much akin to what we see with the other doublets, you know, and, and then again, we have the phenomenon of the curves coming together. Why is that? Yeah, it's a great, fantastic question. Uh, by the way, just to get back, I, I agree. I think we getting comfortable to a regimen is probably part of the secret, right? And the other thing is to, to David's, I mean, if we've been around enough, we know that, you know, there are a low but real chance of cure in some patients. And so for those who really believe in immunotherapy, like thinking of the question, is this a patient where doing a dual, a dual um, IOIO, it's, a, it's reasonable and we have time to actually do that. I think that's the right strategy. A lot of us say, what is the patient is not a good candidate for an IOIO? And I do also favor um, uh, Carbonivo in the cases where I do believe that a TKI um, it's a good is a good opportunity there to be added to the IO. With that said, I don't know. I think the meta analysis do point to exactly to your point, Monty. That you know we see that we can see more response rates. The IOTKI tends to give you about 20% or more or so compared to IOIO, and then the PFS. There's some differences, right? We're talking roughly about two years versus year and a half. If we think of the, the ones who achieve absolute numbers that you know higher, like LAMFPAM and Carbonive in those cases, but then we don't see much of a difference in terms of median survival. Now things like access to sequent therapies, and remember these are all international trials, you know, and so access to sequent therapies might also matter. I think it's very difficult because, you know, we lose patients as we move from one line to the other. So there, I think there are certain factors 
we certainly don't control. Another factor we don't control is exactly what is the tumor signature. In other words, we're not really accounting for that. There's certainly, we all assume that randomization will take care of that, but we don't, I don't think we quite know that for a fact, right? So, we, you know, so with that said, the, I guess it's a long-winded winged, um, answer to say, I don't quite know, but that gives us reassurance that if you go with a combo versus a different one, you are doing the right thing. And that is really the message, is offering an IO-based approach for most of the patients that come to see us with advanced clear cell RCC compared to, to TKI monotherapy. But in less than five seconds, what TKI-IO combination do you use up front? I, I use Carbonifo when I do fever, yes. Okay. So we're going to move on to the next section here. Uh, take a moment if you don't mind. <laughs> I have the moderator. And then we're going to move into what I think, again, is going to provoke a lot of interesting discussion, which is a uh, talk around refractory disease that Dr. Barada is going to lead us through. Uh, Dr. Barada is uh, an absolute superstar in the field who's at Case Western, uh, running a lot of really fascinating trials, some of which I'll highlight my talk. And uh, he's going to talk to us about refractory disease. Thank you so much, Monte. And so it's such a pleasure to be among, you know, really stars and guys who have done a lot for, for this field and for patients with kidney cancer. So happy to be here. It's a, kind of a nice story, right? We started with adjuvant therapy. We move on to frontline, um, you know, advanced disease. And, and the question really is, unfortunately, we're not able to cure the majority of those patients or at least offer long, long remissions. And so unfortunately, these patients will need subsequent therapies. And that's really what we're going to spend the next couple of minutes talking about. Of course, how you get there matters. If you can get there progressing on, IO, uh, on a TKI monotherapy, uh, like sunitinib, gabazentinib, pazapanib, um, you know, you can get there after progressing on IOIO, in this case, ipilimab, nivolumab, or you can get there um, after um, receiving an IO-TKI combo. Of course, the options that we have available change depending on the treatment you were exposed previously. And we go through that data a little bit, but you know, for patients progressing IO-TKI, we do have data with the PD-1 in the second line monotherapy, um, or, or, you know, also there with Cabo and Meteor trial. Then for patients receiving uh, EPNIV end up progressing, I think, you know, we'll show a little bit of data to support the TKI monotherapy, probably Cabo in that, in that scenario. And finally, you know, for patients progressing IOTKI, um, you know, an alternative um, uh, TKI is probably a, a very reasonable approach. So why is that? So before I get there, just to remind, you know, again, the great um, elegant um, uh, survey put together by KC Cure, highlighting over 30% of patients with advanced disease, over 1,000, so big, big, big study. And I think it's quite telling that actually over two-thirds of patients uh, tell us that they are actually not aware of, you know, risk status is. And just a reminder, you know, this score by, developed by Dan Hang and many others, um, you know, the goal was to, to understand prognosis based on their, uh, based on a multivariate analysis of characteristics up, uh, measure up front, right? It was done in the TKI era, if you will, so a long time ago, but we've embedded the categories of uh, intermediate good and poor risk or intermediate poor and high risk, um, you know, um, in the, all the phase three trials we've been measuring today. So, but it's quite telling that actually almost 70% of patients are not aware of that because they didn't have that conversation in the clinics. And what's also telling to me at least is actually the concept that patients have a, a, about long-term response. What do you mean by long-term response? And perhaps what we mean by long-term response is very different to what this survey is telling us. Because if you look at the numbers, you know, you can see actually that 70% of patients think that long-term response is responding five or more years and actually a quarter of them thinks that long-term response is being um, without progression for over a decade, 
right? And this is quite telling. I think this speaks a lot about, you know, what, what uh, the, our concepts might mean different things for patients we're trying to treat. And finally, when we go um, around thinking about therapy for advanced disease, you know, and you ask the importance, um, you know, the importance of the goals that you want to achieve, the number one seems to be chance of eliminating cancer. It's basically cure, right? Long remission slash cure. And at the very least, it comes to the, the cost related to therapies being more affordable. So I think this is very, very informative information for us to have as we treat those patients. So with that said, I'm just gonna go through a couple of data sets that I think are relevant in when we think of the refractory setting. The first Cabo point, very elegant work presented by um, uh, Laurence, uh, Dr. Albige, you know, basically two cohorts of patients uh, progressing on uh, you know, an IO-based approach, IO-IO uh, court A and IO-TKI court B. And you can see there on the right, the, the, the activity measure here in, the, in, in terms of response rate seems to be a little bit higher for patients progressing on IO-IO because they, were, they are TKI-naive patients compared to um, IO-TKI. Nonetheless, I think this validates the concept that uh, indeed cabozantinib is perhaps one of the most active uh, TKIs out there. And it's important to see that in the post-checkpoint uh, uh, inhibitor because that's what we do today for most of our patients. The second study that's relevant, and a lot of us do this in the community, is actually use you know, a, a fairly a very active combo, levatinib combined with Everlimus. So we all know that levatinib is also a multi-TKA kinase inhibitor compared, um, combined with an mTOR inhibitor. So we, Everlimus kind of lost traction as monotherapy. This is one of the reasons why you've shown to be inferior to actually levatinib everlimus. In the same study, by the way, levatinib was also shown to be more active than everlimus. And, you know, perhaps one point here is these patients progress on a prior VHF therapy. So, you know, there was some comments about, you know, we want to see this data um, in the post-IO setting since we're moving the immune checkpoint inhibition um, early on uh, to, to, um, to first line. So this data is actually being utilized in the community to, um, you know, to offer to patients. And with that said, you know, I also should have mentioned that actually there was a dose-finding study that Monty um, uh, led those efforts, understanding exactly what the right dose is, uh, 18 or 14, along with Everlimus, and that it was a non-inferiority study which did not meet the primary endpoint. So in other words, it appears that the activity um, seems to be um, superior with the, um, you know, with the standard uh, combination dose that was approved and with no benefit in terms of safety uh, when you look at the lower dose. So if we want to use the combo, we should go ahead and use actually the dose that has been tested in the Mozer study, in the three-arm study that I just showed you, about 50 patients or so in each arm. So moving on, then you have a very important, in my opinion, phase three trial. It brought us a new TKI um, you know, which is a selective and potent uh, VHF TKI um, in the refractory space. It's tivazinib. Um, it has a long half-life and it has been uh, explored in the refractory setting for patients who have progressed on at least two systemic therapies, and that's important, at least one uh, VHF uh, TKI. You know, the, PF, the progression-free survival is the primary endpoint, and indeed, um, this, the results uh, do favor tivazinib. Tivazinib was shown to be superior compared to um, serafinib uh, in this particular trial, we're talking roughly 38% or so um, risk reduction. What is also relevant when you look at the long term, at the, at the time at three or four years, it's interesting because you still identify a subset of patients who have been gone on tivazinib, you know, without progressing. And I think that speaks from two components. One, there's patients out there to have long benefits to a TKI, in this case to TiVo, and the second is the safety profile probably favors this long-term um, therapy 
um, as patients continue with preserved um, you know, quality of life and have tumor, tumor control. So I think that's important. What's also interesting is to see the behavior of the survival curves over time. We see that although the survival was not positive, we do see a trend in the right direction, perhaps driven by the patients that remain on therapy longer over time. Right. So you see that trend coming down in terms of other ratio. And the most, the most recent one that we've seen was like 11% reduction. Again, not statistically significant. Nonetheless, we see the other ratio dropping and separating or going down and separating from one. So I think the long-term follow-up kind of seemed to be in line with it and kind of established this therapy for patients with refractory um, you know, RCC, again, progressing on two systemic therapies, one being a TKI. Uh, important to highlight the safety. I, 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 for those... You know, for those of us who actually use this in practice, we do see this as a very um, safe um, option out there. We do care about high blood pressure is perhaps the dominant uh, side effect we've seen. You know, we do see, you know, fatigue certainly doesn't seem to be more than uh, the, the serafinib um, in, in, the TIVO, uh, in the TIVO3 trial. But it's really the high blood pressure is the one that comes um, to mind. Um, you know, nonetheless, we do see less dose reduction and dose discontinuation interruptions, despite those patients have been on longer term on tivazanib compared to serafinib in the, in the tivazanib um, um, arm of the TIVO3 trial. So switching gears a bit, so we, we you know, so... When we go back five and six and seven years ago, we were, you know, all excited about it with the emergence of checkpoint inhibitors, and then we established that as new standard of care. And then the next question was, does it make sense to with a salvage approach, right? Because at that time we established Nevo first in the second line. We were emerging with EP Nevo, and the question really was, is there a role for for salvage um, CTLA4 inhibitor? I think we got a number of studies who kind of helped answering that question. We became a little bit skeptical about that, so we understood that probably the right role for CTLA4 inhibitor was in the front line. And then the next question was really, what about the salvage PD-1 or PD-1 inhibition? So with that, I'm going to highlight two studies. This is a work from Dr. Leaves, basically a single-arm proof-of-concept phase two study offering patients who progress on a prior checkpoint inhibitor to be on lenfatinib pembrolizumab. So in this case, the single-arm study, everyone received lenfpem. is actually quite provocative results, right? Responses around close to 50%. Uh, again, in the refractory PD, uh, PD-1, PD-L1 population. So it's very provocative, and this actually leverage, um, you know, the investigation of salvage PD-1, PD-L1 in the refractory setting. And with that, I should highlight a very important study, right? We often say it's easier to publish positive studies, but that's so important sometimes as practice changing to actually report and, and show what we've done with negative studies. So kudos to Monty and Tony and the, and the teams because they did launch this important phase three trial that really asked the question, is there any role to add a tezolizumab, a PDL one inhibitor, to standard of care TKI cabozentinib compared to cabozentinib alone for patients with refractory RCC who progressed within six months on a prior checkpoint? And the answer is really no. It's a flat negative study, but a super important study in my view, because it does clarify, at least for the PD-1 inhibitor, that in fact there's no advantage of doing that uh, because you have more toxicity and you don't get more efficacy with that approach. So very important uh, piece of information. Of course, there were questions that were raised, um, you know, and whether or not that's a, a, a applicable to a PD-1 inhibitor remains to be seen. And with that, here's what we have. We actually have early data showing that uh, combination of nivolumab, a PD-1 inhibitor, along with tivazanib, is safe 
and it presented uh, promising results in this early study, is actually leverage a phase three trial called Tinevo 2. This phase three trial has not read out yet, but he has completed enrollment last year, and he's basically asking not exactly the same question, but a similar question, which is what is the role of a salvage, uh, in this case, nivolumab, a PD-1 inhibitor, you know, uh, um, um, in addition to tivazanib compared to tivazanib alone. So there's some nuances in here that make it different from the other one. As the control arm in here has different doses of the TKI backbone. Um, in a sim um, similarity to the other trial, the, the backbone is the same. We had the same TKI in both arms. It's very important when you want to assess the contribution of the second agent, in this case of the checkpoint inhibitor, Right? And the other is we don't mandate or the, 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 the study does not mandate the progression within six months. So we will see how the data looks like as it reads out. But I do believe this trial combined with the contact three will help, will give some clarification to the field regarding the role of um, salvage uh, uh, checkpoint inhibition um, you know, in the refractory setting. So finally, I have to highlight, of course, the HIV-2-alpha inhibition. It's actually, we already know about this, not because of sporadic RCC, but what happened in patients with VHL disease, right, where it got, actually got approved. It's actually a very elegant work, uh, Dr. John Ash and others, New England paper. And so, we, you know, so the question was to understand, and by the way, there was a Nobel Prize around this that work at UC Southwestern, Boston, et cetera, have done on this. Now, what I'm going to clarify, what I'm going to highlight is really the early data for sporadic RCC. So these heavily pretreated patients who receive this belzutifen or oral medication, um, you know, in uh, patients who, again, uh, refractory clear cell RCC, and we do see quite interesting results. I think with CAR or I, in addition to see about 24 quarter of patients responding, we actually saw median progression-free survival over a year. It was actually 14.5 months. This is data from Tony, um, which is quite interesting because over 70% responded for more than six months, and I believe over 40% of patients got three or more lines of therapy. Heavily pretreated population, this was quite striking results. So we were seeing not a huge shrinkage, but like these patients just stay on without progression. So very provocative, promising results. So all of us were really exciting to look at the data um, um, you know, presented from the LightSpark 05, where really the goal was to establish belzutifen as new standard of care for patients with refractory RCC. So that, that study happened, you know, you basically enroll patients uh, up to three lines of prior uh, systemic therapies, randomized one-to-one to belzutifen and everolimus. Um, you know, this is a positive study. Here's the primary endpoint progression um, you know, free survival, you have about 25% risk reduction. And you see here, you know, the, uh, you see the hazard ratio there accounts for the differences over time, right? So don't, don't get lost by the medians, right? Because the medians are, you know, quite similar there. However, you see the differences, particularly for if you look beyond the six months, you do see a clear separation of the curve. So this is a positive trial and actually end up getting approved about, a, you know, about um, mid-December, so you know, um, um, over a month or so right now. So it's now available for patients with refractory, clear cell, sporadic RCC, and that's very important because we have a new uh, treatment option available to patients. Um, you know, um, the survival, we have not um, identified a difference. We have not seen a difference in overall survival yet. Um, you know, um, and this was a secondary endpoint of interest here in the interim analysis number two. So where can we go from here? Where can we build upon this, right? And I think the answer might be um, in combination strategies, right? We've heard 
that combination strategy the team presented in the adjuvant setting combined with Pembroke. So here's another strategy, right? It's, you know, we're looking at uh, 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 data, um, you know, here, here being presented. I'm just still showing you the secondary endpoints, but um, what I want to um, 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 uh, highlight is, if, you know, is the combination with the TKI. Here's data combining belzutifen with cabozentinib. As light, light spark uh, uh, 003, you know we see um, a quite promising results in here. You can see the time to events there, and that basically that leverage the phase three trial light spark 11, testing the combination of belzutifen with um, you know with levatinib against cabozantinib, you know considered against standard of care for patients with refractory RCC who have received uh, uh, up to two prior systemic therapies. So I do believe this is a very important study as well, um, and we'll see what these data um, you know, teach us. Uh, and with that, I'm gonna pass the baton back to Monty. Awesome, great job. Um, Pedro, this, this is gonna be an interesting component of the discussion. You know, if you came to our peer review program at IKCS a couple months ago, we actually didn't have the data for in the Belzutifan studies at that point in time. So now we have this really great opportunity to talk through second line scenarios. So. I'm going to envision the patient, let's say, that has progressed on initial frontline therapy with cabozantinib and nivolumab. The patient then goes on to second-line therapy, let's imagine, with lenvatinib and everolimus. Okay. What would you choose as their third-line strategy, TN? Um, so cabonevo, then len-everolimus. Mm-hmm. Uh, symptomatic, asymptomatic? Let's go with that first scenario, symptomatic rapid tumor yeah. kinetics. In a hard case, um, I would think about any trials I had available in a refractory setting, and if uh, they didn't fit trial criteria, we would um, probably think about, you know, I think tavaznib is a very valid um, option in that sort of refractory setting based on TBO3. I think belzutifen is now a really good option, too. Um, and and the, the thing I struggle with when I um, think about the patients who might respond to belzutifen is the people who respond respond extremely well, and they have these durable responses. So that interim analysis one and two, you know, over time, these people are getting more benefit. Um, but it's hard to tell which patient population has those long-term effect from belzutifen. So I think either are good options, um, and I would you know, potentially try them in sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm glad you actually, you know, asked about the symptomatic status of the patient because I personally feel like that's a big deal here. You know, that patient needs to evoke a response quickly. As I would imagine, probably most of our patients in the salvage setting do. Right. I would probably side with tavazinib. But if we think that we have, you know, really sort of a long latency in the tumor kinetics, I might side with belzutifan there. But you know, I have to tell you, you know, sitting at ESMO, I wasn't, you know, actually blown away by the data that I was seeing as I sort of anticipated for, for Belzutifan. Um, you know, it just sort of fell short of some of the response rates and pro progression-free survival that we were seeing in the phase one experiences. Probably not something I should have been shocked by. And uh, Dave, what do you think? Talking through this scenario, patient comes to you, let's change the scenario. They've got Nevo Ipi up front. Mm -hmm. They've gotten Cabo next, okay? And they have a symptomatic disease. They need to get on uh, next therapy fast and get a response. What are you going to suggest? Um, so if they've only seen one TKI, I probably would give them a second TKI if they were rapidly progressing, particularly, and it's hard to follow TN because she always gives the right answer, but yes. <laughs> particularly if they were on a full dose of CABO when they progress. Mm -hmm. You know, some patients, the, if they come off CABO or Lenva because you reduce the dose, then TiVo can be particularly helpful in that situation because I think it's easier to tolerate 
for many patients, particularly if they're beat up. Um, but that's the only caveat I would say to what Tien said. But getting back to what you said about Belzunfan, I just want to say, yeah. second here, you know, the, if you just look at the numbers, mm -hmm. the results are not um, earth-shattering. I agree. Um, but the concept is really important, you know, meaning this is our first tumor-directed therapy in kidney cancer that actually hits the tumor. Um, there was a long debate about whether HIF-2 is an important target, so belzutifan proves that it is, um, and you can hit it, and you can have a good clinical outcome with a drug that's much more tolerable. Um, but And getting to Tien's point, we need to absolutely figure out who are those patients who are going to benefit, because if we could get it in earlier for those patients, they would feel much better. Most people, when they switch from VEGF to HIF, they feel better, assuming their cancer can be controlled. So if you had a marker, you could bring it up, much in the way that BRAF is a marker for melanoma therapy, if we had a marker with belzutifan, I think that would make a big difference for patients. But ultimately, we need to build on it. It's surprising the response rate is only 25% if 80% of our patients have a VHL mutation. So why is that? But that, to me, you could look at it as a downer, you know, like, wah, wah, this isn't so great. Or you could say, well, there's an opportunity to get the response rate closer to 70 or 80% either with a better HIF inhibitor or combinations or something like that. So that's, you know, me being the eternal optimist, that's what I would say. <laughs> that's totally fair. Petro, I'm going to throw this at you. So the patient yeah. comes to you after having progressed on cabozantinib nivolumab. You know, this particular patient expresses some interest in belzutifan, but you take into account the fact that only 12% of patients in Lysbarg 005 had received belzutifan in the second-line setting. Is this a treatment consideration that enters in? To, uh, to that discussion? Yeah, so basically second line post-Cabonivo, yes? Yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha, yeah. So, I mean, I agree with those comments. I probably wouldn't, it depends also on how the patient's progressing, right? Mm -hmm. How, you know, when is the progressing occurring, right? Is within the median? Is it three years later? Is it within a year later or less, right? And, you know, how is that um, a progression uh, measure? Because, you know, if you're progressing with, let's say, you know, um, new visual disease, new liver mats, you know, happening within nine or 10 or 12 months, I'm worried about it. And I, I, I you know, and even though, yes, we do this patient stay on Belzutifan for a long time, I probably would feel more comfortable regaining control, perhaps with a therapy would give me more response rates in that scenario to regain control of the disease. Um, you know, on the other hand, the patient might be beaten up, you know, let's say patient is getting a TKI, is beaten up from it. That, that could be a consideration I would take because the safety profile or the tolerability is completely different from belzutifan compared to another TKI. I'm just thinking that scenario, you know, I think TIVA would be an option, Bell would be an option, but also in that case, levatinib plus minus everlimus would also be an option, right? For example, if I get a bit later, you know, also the goal of the game at that point, I, I do think more about belzutifan then, you know, and, um, and I, I think the safety profile of those therapies being so different probably also helps me to decide. So symptoms, look, you know, how the patient is progressing, how quickly is progressing, as uh, David alluded to, you know, and also the tolerability of the two agents who are very different, right? As a patient has issues with, um, you know, lung disease, et cetera, right? Because hypoxia is real, um, you know, versus the other kind of TKI-based uh, side effects. Okay, so, so Belzutifan's second line, probably not. That is Le I do less so in my yeah, practice. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's fair. That's totally fair. And I'm going to actually try to race through the slides in my section so we have a little more time for Q&A. And we've got some good questions coming up also in the chat, so please feel free to send some questions in, and I'll see them register here in my iPad. 
Um, so I'm actually going to focus on some new developments, and this is something that we're actually going to hear about at this meeting, subcutaneous nivolumab. Uh, nivolumab has been approved globally for IV administration, as we all know, but there are certain advantages to sub-Q administration. I'm sure all of us at our respective cancer centers are dealing with issues of infusion space and so forth, so I do think there's some merit to this. Um, there's been a host of studies that have explored subcutaneous nivolumab. You can see this multi-part study that included renal cell carcinoma patients. And for the first time, we really have a randomized demonstration of standard intravenous nivolumab versus subcutaneous nivolumab. You can see here that the indication for nivolumab as a single agent really meets the setting in which we would typically prescribe it in previously treated patients. We know that the co-primary endpoints were met. It looked as though nivolumab sub-Q was not inferior to intravenous administration, uh, which I, I think is compelling and makes a reasonable argument to at least consider it in clinical practice. I'm really excited about this compound, zanzalitinib. I've been working with this agent for a while now in the clinics. If you look at the TKI profile, there's some similarities to cabozantinib, although I don't think any two TKIs are necessarily created equal. It does have a much shorter half-life, and there's some PKPD properties around this that I think really make it more amenable to dosing and perhaps better tolerated than cabozantinib. Um, last year at IKCS, I presented data from this study, Stellar 01, which looked at patients with previously treated renal cell carcinoma, treated with zanzalitinib after a dose escalation at the recommended phase two dose of 100 milligrams daily. Um, and I want to bear in mind as we go through this data, this was a very, very aggressive phenotype that we encountered in this study. 38% of patients with liver metastases, 34% of patients with bone metastases, 41% of patients of this experience with three or more prior therapies. So bear that in mind. And this was really a contemporary population too. Almost everybody had gotten checkpoint inhibitor previously. The vast majority had also gotten a TKI and about half, and this is going to be the interesting part, half had gotten prior cabozantinib. Um, so when you look at the data here, I think this is impressive, again, for an agent that's being looked at in the salvage setting for renal cell carcinoma. Response rate was 38% in this particular series. And this is what really struck me. There's still responses amongst those patients that had received prior cabozantinib, 24% in that cohort. If you look at those patients that hadn't received prior cabozantinib, response rate actually climbs to 57%. So this really does seem to stand out. Um, and if we look at patients who had gotten a prior VEGF TKI who hadn't received prior cabozantinib, you see that the disease control rate actually extends to about 100%, which uh, to me is, is quite satisfying. Now, Stellar 002 is a study that's going to assess multiple cohorts. This is an ongoing trial that looks at xanthalitinib in combination with Nevo, Nevo-Ipi, Nevo-Rella. I think this is going to be really compelling and important to bear in mind that this doesn't just include clear cell renal cell carcinoma patients where, you know, you would anticipate activity with zanzalitinib, but also non-clear cell patients as well. And I think there's going to be a lot of interesting data coming out of this trial in the coming years. Now, what about combination therapy? Um, you know, we oftentimes reflect on the role of combination therapy in the clear cell setting. I wanted to just highlight very quickly for you some data that's emerging in the non-clear cell space. Uh, me and Neeraj Agarwal and several others put together the data set for cabozantinib and atezolizumab. Uh, there's a lot of swimmer, uh, sorry, uh, waterfall plots shown here. If you look at the data for cabozantinib and atezolizumab, response rate in papillary ICC, I think it's compelling, 47%. The response rate with cabozantinib and nivolumab as well, 47%. Bevacizumab and atezolizumab falls a bit short with a response rate in the 20s, actually, for papillary RCC. 
And then lenvatinib and pembrolizumab, we're going to see some updated data from Kino B61, which looked at lenpembro for non-clear cell. I think actually this study has some legs, and it's going to be interesting to see how this bears out, hopefully in randomized designs in the future. I haven't seen that as yet. For all the investigators in the room, I could really use your help with this clinical trial. We don't have enough studies that really focus on patients with non-clear cell kidney cancer. This is the Stellar 304 trial that includes patients not just with papillary RCC, which has been the focus of several studies that I and others have worked on in the past. This also includes unclassified histologies. It includes translocation-associated RCC. These are disease subtypes that I think are greatly in need of novel therapies. So the randomization here is desinitinib, versus zanzalitinib with nivolumab. You've seen the compelling data for zanzalitinib in clear cell disease. There's accumulating data in non-clear cell as well. Now, in the last portion of my talk, I really wanted to kind of veer into uncharted territory here in renal cell carcinoma and really suggest to you that there might be some cool pathways and mechanisms that we have, haven't yet explored. Uh, my outstanding fellow, Nasli Disman, who's now at MD Anderson, did this first study with nivolumab and ipilimumab plus or minus CBM588. Now, CBM588 isn't a targeted therapy. It's not a checkpoint inhibitor. This is actually a microbial construct that enters into the lower gut. Uh, it's a spore form of Clostridium butyricum. starts producing butyrate in the lower gut, and we think that augments the immune response. And she demonstrated that very nicely in a Nature Medicine paper that she led. Uh, I have an outstanding fellow in the audience, Dr. Hedja Ibrahimi, uh, who actually led the second study that you see there, cabozantinib plus nivolumab, with or without CBM588. Um, and it was demonstrated in that study as well that we see an improvement in progression-free survival over the control arm of cabozantinib and nivolumab as well. So she's putting the finishing touches on that manuscript, which she presented in a terrific session at ASCO last year. Uh, and, of course, we do these small studies within institutions as ISTs. It's all fine and dandy, but we need somebody to take it across the finish line. So I'm very grateful to Pedro Barada who's actually uh, developed a SWOG proposal that I, I think is actually moving along fairly quickly um, that's going to be looking at IO-based therapies plus or minus CBM588 and a definitive phase three clinical trial. So really excited to see how this pans out. We're exploring anything and everything at our institution that we think might potentially modulate the gut microbiome. I think uh, this is perhaps an area that we've overlooked in recent years. I have an outstanding fellow from Mexico City, Dr. Regina Barragan Carrillo, who's here in the audience tonight as well. Um, so Rahia has actually turned her attention to Camu Camu. So just by show of hands, who here has heard of Camu Camu before? A couple of folks. I, I actually hadn't heard of this, uh, but my dear friend and colleague Bertrand Rudy from the University of Montreal has this terrific paper in Cancer Discovery that showed that you can actually take an isolate from Camu Camu, this natural product, and really augment the impact of immunotherapy in mouse models of melanoma. He's actually starting a study in melanoma in Canada, and it's up and accruing, uh, that looks at this exact same uh, phenomenon, nivolumab and ipilimumab with Camu Camu. Here we've done a small randomization as we have in our prior studies. So Dr. Barragan Carrillo and I are, are in the clinics day to day, or recruiting for this particular clinical trial. Again, it's one that we could use uh, help with if you have patients in the Southern California area. Um, what else are we doing in the RCC space? Um, I am really interested in cellular therapies for RCC, as are many of my colleagues uh, up on the stage today. Um, you know, I've been working with uh, a, a compound called CTX-130, which is a CAR-T construct that's targeting CD70. This is a very pervasive antigen in renal cell carcinoma. 
And it didn't work in everyone in a preliminary study that we did with 14 patients, but I actually treated the patient that's at the top of that swimmer plot there. And this patient actually had a CR after frontline therapy with cabozantinib and atezolizumab in a phase one. And I'm really pleased to report that that CR has actually been maintained now in three years. So, you know, I think there's uh, some legs to this CAR T-cell therapy approach. We still haven't got it perfectly right yet, but we're working on it. ADCs, I mean, it's hard to come to an oncology meeting these days without hearing about ADCs. Certainly many fascinating ones, I think, being developed in bladder cancer. But there are some ADCs currently in use. We're working with uh, many others on this trial, looking at PRO1160, which is an ADC that's uh, directed to CD70 as well. Um, I wanted to wrap up here by highlighting an abstract that I think is really of critical importance. We focused a lot tonight on recommendations that we might offer to patients. I think that many times our recommendations are substantiated by what we either perceive from looking at toxicity data or maybe looking at quality of life data. Pedro alluded to the fact that we'll see some quality of life data for Belzutifan presented at the meeting this time around. I just wanted to spotlight this work from my outstanding fellow who's now actually a faculty member in Brazil uh, who's doing a ton of fantastic health-related quality of life work. She developed this three-part study in which she first engaged about 200 patients at City of Hope, at center, cancer centers in Europe and Brazil, um, and then approached actually a panel of experts in kidney cancer, and finally a panel of kidney cancer advocates. And what they've done is actually really honed in on a revised survey that takes all the quality of life metrics that we've been subjecting patients to for many years, and I think come up with a short list of 10 or 12 questions that might really be useful in that particular context. Uh, while I'm on this slide, I need to give a shout out to my two outstanding clinical research coordinators, Danny and Ben, who actually surveyed the majority of patients that uh, were uh, included in this particular study. A lot of legwork in the clinics, and I'm deeply appreciative. Um, so I'm going to wrap up there, um, and we have actually eight minutes now for some Q&A. I went through that very quickly just so I could throw some more zingers um, at my colleagues here. Um, I'm going to take a quick look here and see if there's any audience response questions that have come up. And while I do that, Dave, I'm going to um, throw a question to you. Okay. This is a tough one. Okay. I'm ready. This is a tough one. So, you know, we went through a scenario in our previous Q&A session where a patient who's progressed on frontline therapy and second-line therapy might be receiving Belzutifan. Let's picture a gentleman who shows up to your clinic with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. He's been on cabozantinib and nivolumab. He's been on linvatinib and everolimus in the third line setting, second line setting, excuse me. Um, he meets an outside oncologist who starts belzutifan therapy, very appropriate, I think, in that third line setting. And the patient has anemia. Hemoglobins are drifting down to the level of seven, eight. And he actually is referred by his oncologist to start receiving uh, EPO at that particular time. Patient comes to you and says, well, gosh, I was just, you know, digging through the package insert. It's a very informed uh, patient. And he comes across this recommendation suggesting that we shouldn't be using erythropoietin-stimulating agents. Um, what would you say to that patient in that context? Uh, you would explain that while that's a concern in other groups of patients that hasn't been seen so far as a problem in the current Belzutifan trials, it doesn't mean we won't see it as we start expanding the application of Belzutifan to patients with other medical issues that might be at higher risk of clotting for other reasons. For example, patients who are not candidates for clinical trials, we could see it. But up, up until now, that has not been a, a problem that has been picked up in any of the case report forms that I've, that I've seen. I don't know what others have to say, but it, that hasn't been an issue. 
And the good part about Darbo or EPO in that setting is it works really well quickly to improve patients' anemia. They often feel much better quickly. What do you think, Tien? You've gone through the appropriate dose reductions with the patient on Belzutafan. Is EPO sort of registering into the equation for you? Yeah, I, I think it's a on on target effect is lower um, erythropoietin production. So um, by replacing it, right, it is uh, um, uh, it's it's natural to kind of think about replacing that growth factor so we can allow red cell production. So um, I I would have no qualms to to use erythropoietin and um, talk them through um, well the prior data that was generated with EPO, but not in this particular setting as. Um, David has mentioned very nicely. Very good. Pedro, I'll, I'll throw this question to you. Uh, and this is going to sort of build on some of the principles outlined, not in our second line discussion, but in Dave's very eloquent discussion of frontline therapy. You have a patient, and this reflects one of the audience response questions, who has started on frontline nivolumab and ipilimumab, is on for two years, has a tremendous response, uses or decides to take a treatment-free interval you know, at that point in time and two years later is noted to have some metastatic disease reemerge. Let's say at that point in time, it's asymptomatic lung metastases. So again, the patient's been exposed to two years of nevo-ipi, nevo-maintenance, has a two-year break, and has a really, I would say, minimally symptomatic disease burden, light disease burden. Was your re-challenge with IO at that time? Yeah, I'm assuming it's not all legal progression, yes? So you yeah, have a new spot, but you have a few... Let's say that it's beyond scope of what you can address with surgery or radiation. Okay, got you. So I probably would. You know, I think the longer you get from from um, um, stopping or holding the immunotherapy, the more likely you're still to be sensitive to it. So I would not, uh, you know, label that patient as resistant to immunotherapy in that scenario. Um, you know, and so I probably would do that. I was just bringing the other point up because if we have a solitary progression, I probably would address it with local therapy. Um, but in that scenario, Monty, where you're saying there's, you know, let's say a couple of lung nodules growing now, I, I probably would go back um, to, to Nevo. Dave, what do you think? I, I mean, I think it's a great question, not just for that scenario, but that's the scenario we're going to be dealing with increasingly now that Pembro is going to be used so broadly in the adjuvant setting is what do you do with someone who recurs after Pembro? And the short answer is right now we don't know and we come up with some of these arbitrary timelines where you might offer it versus when you wouldn't offer it. In, the, in melanoma, the trial that got the drug approved for adjuvant melanoma, the Keynote 054 study, patients could get as part of the trial either, uh, could get Pembro either um, if they were on placebo or if they progressed off therapy. There actually was a response rate in some of those patients who had a year of Pembro then recurred subsequently after six months not as much as it was initially, but there's some activity there. So we need to define what the activity is of PD-1s in patients who've seen a PD-1 therapy. Mm -hmm. We actually you need to do that, a, a, a prospective trial in that setting, so as not to overtreat patients. Excellent. Excellent. You know, I'm going to throw a different scenario altogether to you guys here, which we didn't really address in the context of this talk. Tien, patient presents to your clinic, 68-year-old male with metastatic renal cell carcinoma, lung metastases, again, let's say this is beyond the scope of what you can apply surgery or radiation to, you're inclined to offer systemic therapy. Pathology in this case, though, is papillary renal cell carcinoma. What treatment might you start with in that setting? Uh, well, Monty, your PAPMET study uh, gives us really great data for cabozantinib in that setting, and um, uh, the SWOG PAPMET2 trial that Ben Mon is leading, um, I think would be quite appropriate to think about uh, cabo with atezolizumab um, versus cabozantinib. So 
Uh, I think the more we can do um, biologically focused uh, studies, um, you know, to to not just lump non-clear cell uh, disease, but really to separate out those um, histologies and um, and really ask those pertinent questions, um, the better we'll actually have data for those patients. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And we addressed this other non-clear cell study, Pedro, in the course of our discussion tonight, Stellar 304. Right. Tell us your thoughts on that. You know, I've heard some rumblings that there's, you know, uh, some critiques of the control arm in that trial with sinitinib. What are your thoughts or how much you counsel a patient around this? Yeah, this is a great question. So outside of trial, I, I tend to offer an IO-based combo, IO to KI. I don't do IO-IO, but I do tend to offer that based on, you know, a proof of concept, um, including Carbonivo, Lev, PAM, you, you show that elegantly. On a trial, I think we really need to establish a new standard of care. You can only do that through a randomized trial, as you highlighted. Um, you know, we, we're working on the survival, for example, for PAPMAT, great elegant work that you're working on, and, you know, it doesn't seem that the, you know, there doesn't seem to be a difference. So we actually, to be fair, we've never seen actually survival advantage with an IOTKI compared to a TKI monotherapy. So I'd argue to uh, Tian's point that, you know, TKI is still, you know, and I would argue probably cabozentinib, but, you know, even sinitinib is still the standard of care for those patients. So it's particularly in papillary, I would say, but, you know, so I think, um, you know, I think that's, um, uh, if you get access to subsequent therapies, we know that, uh, although, you know, David, ran a very nicely done work, um, you know, uh, 427, right, in the non-clear cell cohort. We actually seen activity, but I still, I feel a little bit more uncomfortable offering IO without a TKI component there. So overall, we know there's lower responses for the TKI, but I would argue that if we can do it off trial, I probably would do more. If you do it on trial, there's, there's way to change standard, and that's what I would advocate for, whether that's PubMed 2, whether that's Stellar 304, or any other uh, trial out there. I think that's the way for us to change practice uh, around the world for those patients. Great note to end on. I think we do need to do more trials to really resolve standard of care in, in these rare entities. Um, so with that, I really wanna thank you guys. Excellent discussion today. I asked some tough questions, but you got all of them right. So a big round of applause for you guys. That's good. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Kidney Cancer Research Alliance. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XZU860. This educational activity is supported through medical education grants from Aveo Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Azi Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, and Merck and Company Incorporated.